Well, this morning when uh, Becky for the first service came in and Ruth came in, they realized they had to read two passages. Both of them looked horrified. So can we give Ruth a round of applause and thank her for handling that? They're our first readers ever to do that, and they handled it well. We're going to be in both those passages today. So we're going to start in Romans 6 and then jump over to 1 Corinthians 11. So hopefully you've had some time to turn there. Uh, mark in your Bibles there where we're going to be, and we're going to spend, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, join me in a word of prayer before we get this started. God, we're grateful uh, for each and every person who's here today. We're grateful for uh, everything that's happened to this moment, what you've worked about in our lives to bring us here. And we know that you have every one of us here, not by accident, but for your own distinct purposes. And so, Lord, regardless of topic today, uh, regardless of, of focus, would you speak now whatever you want us to hear? Uh, would you move and, and bless each person who, who's taken the time out of their lives to, to be here? And would you have us all leave here? Having been drawn closer to you, having been more fully in love with you and, and in a deeper walk with you than we walked in. Yeah, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been nervous on the first day of a job? The most, I can tell you the most nervous I was on the first day of a job was really, a, it, was, it wasn't a difficult job at all. It was just what happened in the first 30 minutes. I got hired when I was about 19 or 20 to work on the summer grounds crew at Lieber State Recreation Areas over there in Owen County, about 45 minutes from here. Now, I lived near Lieber. I, I knew the park well. Uh, I, I had known, I know how to get there. What I didn't know were any, was where any of the maintenance sheds were or where any of the grounds crew met. And so and nobody told me either. So I drive in first day at work extra early because I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And so I asked the front gate, you know, where, where, did the, where does the grounds crew go? And so they send me back to this collection of, it felt like seven or eight different buildings. And I had to just figure out which one I was supposed to be in. And, and finally I made it in there for what was a morning huddle. And, and the, basically the huddle was this. They told you your job for the day and then you're supposed to go do it. There was no, expo no further explanation, no training or anything. So I'm sitting there my first day of work. They get to me and say, Brett, you're going to take a gator out and you're going to hit every campsite, pick up trash and, and shovel out all the, all the ash from the fire pits. Okay, great. Walk out the building. I don't know where the gators are. I don't know where the shovels are. I don't know any, like I don't, so I'm just going to, well, figure it out, right? And then as I'm walking out, they say, oh, by the way, the gator you're going to take in has, a, has, its right rear tire is flat, so take care of that as well. Awesome. I don't know where the air pump is either, you know. I eventually find a, a row of gators. I find the one with the flat tire, and so I start driving it from barn to barn to barn. And then about the fourth barn, I see what looks like an air tank and a hose coming out. Okay, this is the one. So I back in there. And I'm grabbing the hose, and I just distantly start hearing shouting. And the shouting gets louder and louder, and I turn around, and two of my bosses are waving their hands and going, that's a torch! That's a torch! It's not the air pump! Right? So immediately, guess what I am now? I am completely rattled. Right, this is my first day in the job. I just about blew up the whole place. Right? I about lit a, about lit a vehicle on fire. But you know why I was mostly rattled? Because nobody told me anything. Right? Nobody gave me any direction. Nobody, they assumed that I knew where all the barns were, where all the tools were, where everything. I just, it was just assumption that I'd been working there my whole life when I hadn't. Okay? And I bring up that story because what happens is when the church of Jesus Christ gathers, there are things that we get to do that those of us who are part of the church are used to. Right? We get to worship him by song. Right? We get to gather together and celebrate him. We get to open his word. We get to take part in ordinances that he commanded like baptism and communion. But if we're not careful, what we're going to do is create a whole bunch of me's. 
Right? People who are genuinely trying to find their way into our faith, genuinely trying to find their way into this church, genuinely trying to find their way into these services. And all these things are going on, and there's a baseline assumption that they are supposed to know why. They just don't. And so what do they do? They sing because everyone else is doing it. I guess this is what we do now, right? They stand when everyone else stands. They sit when everyone else sits. They, they take part in communion. They watch baptisms, and, and they, but they couldn't tell you why, okay? And, and, and that's why I've, I've really enjoyed this focus of our Heartbeat series. All year long, we, we're going through this Heartbeat series. We're trying to get back to the root of our faith and discover not only what is available to us, but why. And so in this worship focus, what we've been doing is trying to walk you through not just not how you can worship in your own individual life, but what we do as a corporate worship, because we don't want people to come in here and just be confused as to what's happening. By God's grace, there, there are new people coming in all the time. It's not because we have our act together. Brandon proved that just a few minutes ago, right? <laughs> Sorry, I got a microphone after you messed out. Sorry. It's not because we're just buttoned down and we have it. It's just God's grace is sending people here. And so we want them to understand what it is we're doing when we gather. And so throughout this worship focus, we, there's been a few main arguments. And the first is that you've been designed to worship, okay, which leads us to point two, which means you are worshiping. It's part of your design. There's no question as to whether or not you're worshiping something in your life. Third, and this has been the biggest one, worship is bigger than you think. It encompasses way more areas of your life than you've ever given it credit for. Everything you do can be worship. And fourthly, the only right form of worship is the worship of God. And so we've looked at obedience, right? We've looked at singing. We've looked at uh, praise and worship, both corporately and individually. We've looked at having a lifestyle of worship. We've looked at worshiping with your work. We've looked at worshiping by service and good deeds. And today, to, to close out this focus, I want us to look at, at two other opportunities to worship. And these two are unique, and they're separate, and, and they really are. They're heightened and special in their own right. Uh, and they've been done as long as the church of Jesus has existed. But honestly, there's a lot of confusion and division over them, which isn't surprising because that's what human beings do with God's gifts all the time. These two gifts I'm talking about are baptism and communion. And what, the reason we're going to take some time to go over those today is because I don't want anyone to be here at FBN and be feeling left out. I don't want us to be a place where we just assume everyone's in the know and we've never taken the time to train them. Right? And many of you this morning are like, man, you think about checking out, because you're like, man, i got a pretty good grip on what these things are. Well, hang with me, okay? I believe this will be beneficial for you too. Because if we're going to do this as a church, and we will, if you're commanded to do this as a follower of Jesus, and you've been commanded to do these by Jesus, if they are distinct and separate and unique, if there's power in both of them, then it would be really good of us to have a good grasp on what they are, wouldn't it? So I want us to walk through these together this morning and be on the same page as a church and people striving to follow Jesus. And, and know this is the start. I'm, I'm not going to hide from this this morning. It's just a reality. There will be points of contention in the sermon. Okay? There's going to be things that I say today from this stage that not every church agrees with. So what you need to know is I'm not speaking on behalf of the entire church. Not. I'm simply speaking to FBN this morning. And you need to understand something about us. We don't put any stock in denomination. We don't put any weight in tradition. Those just don't carry weight for us. In fact, if you're here today because there's Baptists in our name, and if you're here today and you're against that, I'll anger both of you by the time the sermon's over. Right? We're a Jesus church, and we rely totally on the Word of God. And so all we're going to do today is just show you what the Bible says. 
And any gray area, we're just going to lean where the Bible leans. And listen, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with us. But just please know ahead of time, we take steps to ensure we're not sharing you our opinion. We're not sharing you our traditions. We're not sharing you anything other than the word of God. And so if something that you hear today goes against your upbringing or your tradition or something goes against some, something that someone you love taught you, do me a favor and just breathe. Okay, just don't, don't, don't get all worked up. And then just open yourself up to the scriptures and let God work. Because it's not my goal to convince you of anything today. I just want FBN to understand what the Bible says about these important aspects of the Christian life. That's it. And what you need to know, church, what you need to know about baptism and communion is that both are acts of worship commanded exclusively and inclusively for followers of Christ. They're commanded exclusively because only, they're only commanded of people who are following Jesus. But they're inclusive because every single follower of Christ is to partake in them. They're not, we're not to keep anyone from them. And so the first that we're going to tackle today is, is baptism. We're going to spend some time in Romans 6, but first I'm going to put a couple verses on the screen for you, starting in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 tells us that then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Then in Acts chapter 2, this is right at the end of Peter's powerful sermon at Pentecost, and we're told this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, that's, that's key, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's completely Completely undeniable and inarguable that baptism is a command from Jesus himself. Right? We're told to do it. And the catchphrase that we've had sort of hung all the heartbeat series on is this. If it's important to Jesus, it needs to be important to us. Right? But what has happened is that, that people have taken this command, this gift of baptism, and they brought some confusion into the mix. Right? They made it, made it into a debate. And so first what we're going to do this morning is first we need to understand what baptism is and then we'll cover for you what it isn't. And what it is, to remind you what it is, we're going to look right where Ruth read at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. And here's what Paul says to the church at Rome. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The first thing about baptism you need to understand, and we've already covered, is that it is a command from Jesus himself. Jesus is our Lord. We need to do what he says. That's a, that alone is enough for you to do it. But secondly, it's, it's something that we take right here from Romans 6. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus. Glance down again at some of the language in these verses. We're told that we, those who have been baptized, have been baptized into Jesus' death, that we are buried with him, that we are raised to life. Now, we're going to take a few minutes to expound on ways of baptism in a minute, but this right here tells you why we do baptisms the way we do at FBN. Because it's this imagery of when you're standing upright in the water. It's just like when Jesus was upright on the cross. And just as Jesus gave his life from the cross, died, then was buried, and was raised to new life, the picture is of you dying to yourself. 
Are you dying to, to be in your own God and calling your own shots anymore? You're dying to be in your own Savior. That there's anything that you could do to save you. You're throwing all your lot in with Jesus. You're being buried. Your old way of life is being buried. And you're being raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. And, and the picture is beautiful. And I challenge anyone not to be moved by it. But like all acts of worship, the focus isn't on you. And we've got to get this, right? Because we, we celebrate when someone's baptized, don't we? The person getting baptized often invites friends and family that make a big deal of it. And guess what? We should. It is a big deal, right? But some also will teach, right, that, that the baptism, the point of baptism, this is your proclamation. It's your coming out party as a follower of Christ. That you're declaring publicly on the outside what Jesus has done for you on the inside. And listen, all that's right, all that's okay, all that's fair. So long as we know this, as long as we know the focus is in us. Because when someone goes into the baptism waters, the design is for them to bring glory to Jesus Christ. It is less and less, look at what I've decided to do, and more and more, look at what Jesus has done for me. Right? And in the picture that we paint of the gospel, Jesus gets center stage, and rightfully so. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the story of the gospel. Thirdly, it's the first step of obedience for follower Jesus. Throughout the scriptures, I want you to note this. Whenever you read about someone placing their faith in Jesus for the first time, you know what comes right after? Every time, baptism. Nowadays, people might wait weeks, months, years, because they want to understand it or get it right. And, and this is on us. Right? This is on us for not teaching it clearly. Baptism is the first step for a believer in Christ in making the shift. And the shift I'm talking about is shifting Jesus from Savior to Jesus to, as Savior and Lord. Because when we believe in Jesus, he is our savior, right? We're told that just, just believe, it's just faith that saves us from the penalty of sin and death. Jesus forgives us our sin. Jesus gives us life eternal. He is our savior. But baptism is the first step of declaring him as Lord. I'm doing this because Jesus told me to. I'm doing this because I, I, my life lines up with him now. And it's hugely important because as one redeemed by Christ, that's what your life is to look like. He's your Lord, which means what? You do what he says, and any act of obedience in front of Jesus always feeds additional acts of obedience for you and for others. I've seen it every time. When someone gets baptized, it becomes easier for them to declare Jesus as Lord of the life in other areas. And every time someone gets baptized around here, it almost leads to more, always leads to more baptisms. Because obedience feeds obedience. And so baptism, which you need to know, church, that baptism is a command from Jesus. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Baptism is the first step of obedience for a follower of Christ. But it is not, baptism is not a means of salvation. And this is where some controversy gets stirred up. Right? There are Christian circles, there are churches, there are denominations who will teach this, that you must be baptized to be saved. And that word saved I'm using means this. You must be baptized to have your sins forgiven. You must be baptized to have eternal life in heaven. And let's give them this this morning. I want to be as fair as we can possibly be. There are verses in the Bible when taken alone could lean that way. And so just so we're all on the same page, I want us to walk through one. Let's look at one. First Peter chapter 3, we're going to put it on the screens for you. 1 Peter chapter 3, here's what it says. We're going to start in verse 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now verse 21, listen to this. 
And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So there in verse 21 is that phrase, this baptism that now saves you also. And I'm telling you, there, there are Christian circles that who love that verse. Right? Because it just seems to confirm to them that, that baptism is something that saves you. And so they practice one of two things. They either practice infant baptisms that they teach will graft babies into the family of God forever. Or there are circles that say that those who claim belief in Jesus, even as adults, but haven't been baptized, still aren't saved. And so there's two things that I, I want to say about this this morning so we can all be clear on this. Number one, we cannot be jerks about this. We just can't. Right? We can't dismiss people who disagree with us or have a different view on us. We can't call them names because one honest look at this verse, and even the verse in Acts 2 we read earlier, you can see where that conclusion comes from. Okay? So don't, don't be a jerk about it. But listen to me, church. Number two is important. We cannot accept this. We just can't. I, I hate confrontation. I would love it if I could just agree with everyone all the time. But on this, I can't. The stakes are too high. Because what we're talking about is literally the gospel. And, and I want you to understand something. There, there is immense danger in building a theological view off one or two verses. You get that, right? And that danger is increased when what you're talking about is the salvation, the eternal destination of human souls. And, and, and we believe that if you just pan out just even a couple verses and see the context that is going to paint a different picture. First Peter 3 in verse 18 that we read, Peter writes that Christ suffered once for sins. You know what that means? That means that work was sufficient. That means Jesus only had to suffer once because no act, no work, nothing else needed to be added to Christ's blood on the cross. It also points out that after it, Peter tells us that Jesus was made alive again in the spirit. It's another surefire sign that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as totally complete and sufficient. Because if the penalty for death had not been paid, not even Jesus would have rose from the dead. Then Peter makes notion of the waters of the flood, the Old Testament flood with Noah. And he ties that analogy to baptism day. But did you notice, even in doing so, he catches himself? He says, the baptism that saves you. And then you, in, in your English Bible, there's a little dash there. He's like, it's bad and saves you, but well, not the water. See, he, he catches himself. Not, not the water like you could ever wash your sins like you wash dirt from your body, but really what comes from a clear, a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Now, what does that mean? That's just a bunch of big language. What Peter's doing is he's clarifying that saving does not come from a physical act of being washed or immersed in water. Salvation comes from appealing to and calling to the Lord. Romans 10, 13, many of you know this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Be saved. That's what faith does. Faith calls out to God. And baptism is the God-ordained symbolic expression of that call of faith. There's a New Testament theologian, James Dunn, who puts it this way. He says, 1 Peter 3, 21 is actually the nearest approach to a definition of baptism the New Testament gives us. Because what he's arguing is that baptism is a picture of our call to God. It's telling God, I trust you the way that Noah trusted you to take him through the flood in the ark. I'm throwing myself at your mercy that you will save me from the penalty of my sins and the spare of death because I'm all in with you and trusting nothing else. 
Now, on top of that, we have the witness of the entire Bible, and that's where you should build your theological views. Jesus in John 5 says that the only work that God the Father requires is to what? To believe in his Son whom he sent. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and not of any works, lest any one of us could boast. Hebrews 4 repeats Peter when it says that Jesus died once for all, meaning there were no more acts, no more sacrifices, no more displays needed for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10 says that Jesus is making perfect forever those he is sanctifying. And then you have the entire book of Galatians, which isn't even about baptism at all. But what happened in the church of Galatia is that a group of teachers had showed up after they'd given their lives to Christ, and they taught the church that in addition to belief, addition to faith in Jesus, they needed to add on the spiritual act of being circumcised. And for an entire letter, Paul just takes these clowns out, and he keeps repeating over and over and over again, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith, it's faith alone that saves someone. In fact, he goes a step further and Paul says that anyone who relies on any work at all is still trusting in themselves. And Jesus saves the one who completely and totally relies on him and him alone saveth. This is the gospel, church. And on this, we have to take our stand. Paul, Paul tells the church in Corinth, I'm reminded of the gospel that I taught you, reminded of the gospel that you believed in, and on this, you stand and you do not move. So in this, we have to be rigid. So how do we practice baptism then at FBN? Well, given what we just covered, we practice what is called believer's baptism, which just simply means this. We're not going to baptize anyone unless they've surrendered their lives to Jesus, consciously made that decision to trust him to save them. Now, those who have done it, here's our strong belief. There's no reason to delay it. Right? Think, think about it growing up in your house uh, with your parents or having a coach or teacher or boss. Right? Did it ever work out for you if you delayed obedience? Did it ever go well? Right? Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He commands us to do this. Why would you just wait on that? Why would you delay? There's no reason to delay obedience. Now, a point of practice here, just so you understand. Uh, we do baptisms by immersion here. And I want to give a point of clarification here. We have the word Baptist in our church name. Okay, which might make you assume that we're really crazy on this point. We're not. There's probably a few of us in here that are, but we're not as a church. Okay, so I can tell you where we land on this. We put our stock in the word of God. We don't put our stock in a church name or denomination. And so if I'm honest, I have to tell you this this morning. There is no scriptural command that baptism must be by immersion. I'll say it again to make sure all the Baptists get mad at me. There is no scriptural command that baptism must be by immersion. It always amuses me that on this one point, if you meet a Baptist, they, get, they become a Greek scholar all of a sudden. Right? The only Greek word they know is baptizo. Well, you know in the Greek, baptizo means to go down. It means to be immersed. They don't know another Greek word. Okay? They just know that one. And if you read the Bible, here's, what, here's the point I want to make to that. If you read the Bible, God is very capable of getting very specific when he wants um, if, you, if you need to nap this afternoon and you can't fall asleep, turn to Exodus or Leviticus and start reading his description of the tabernacle of Moses. It goes on for like 20 chapters in mind-numbing detail, okay? Because when God wants to be specific, he gets very specific. Yet on something as important as baptism, he wants me to know Greek. Now, 
the original language is a valuable tool. We've used it in this series. We're going to continue to use it as a church. But God's commands on important essential matters are clear enough. You don't have to be bilingual to understand them. On top of that, I'll throw this fun little ditty out to you that one of my professors gave me. Because I was one of you. I used to argue, oh, it's baptizo, right? So I had a college professor who showed me these. There, there are hieroglyphics that have been discovered from the time of Jesus in catacombs and tombs and caves where the church was meeting that are drawings of Jesus' baptism. And guess what these drawings portray? In them, Jesus is standing in the Jordan River and water is being poured on him. Now, is that near authoritative enough to say that biblical baptism is by pouring? Absolutely not. No. The point is this. There is no absolute biblical clarity on this. The thrust of the Bible tells me that God is more interested in why someone is being baptized. He's more interested that their heart is surrendered to him than how it happened. So why do we immerse? Well, we immerse because of what we read in Romans 6. That's why. We immerse because it's the clearest picture of the gospel that we as his church have been commanded to proclaim. We immerse because I challenge anyone to see someone buried and raised to life, new life, and not be moved. We immerse because our aim and our goal is to exalt Jesus the most we can, and we believe that's what immersion does. Because that's the heartbeat of baptism, to exalt Jesus and proclaim his gospel. And so if you've never been baptized after giving your life to Jesus, don't delay obedience. Okay? But make sure you approach it with that focus. You approach it with the focus to make much of Jesus. Because it's not about you. It's not about others if you want, who want you to do it. By the way, if you're a parent or a grandparent and you're pressuring someone in your family to get baptized, just stop it. Stop it, please. It doesn't help anyone. The approach is this. It's all about him. It's all for him. It's all worship. Okay. That's baptism. The second is communion. Turn to Roman, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Ruth read for you earlier. And this is one we actually get to take part in together as a church today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion, much like baptism, is an act of worship commanded for followers of Christ to observe. But the difference for communion is we're to observe it until Jesus returns. And in this one, it's, it's really, the imagery is simple, right? It's defined for us outright by Jesus. The communion is a meal that all who belong to Jesus share with him and each other. And in it, bread is passed. And what, and what does Jesus tell us? The bread represents his body. Right? His body that was beaten. His body that was punched and whipped and pierced and nailed and hoisted on the cross. His body that was offered up as a holy and perfect sacrifice for the sins of all who believe in him. And then comes the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus. The blood that flowed off of him and down the cross. The blood that pays the price for my sins. Nothing I've done, but only his blood. The blood that washes me clean. And so as we, as his church, partake in communion, we we get to do two things. Number one, we are proclaiming that gospel again. And number two, we're remembering the price that Jesus paid. At Cloverdale High School, where where I went, there's only two gyms 
And so during basketball season, when you had a boys varsity and a boys JV and a boys freshman team and a girls varsity and girls JV and the seventh and eighth grade teams, there wasn't much gym space. And so the freshman boys basketball team, guess when we got to practice? 6 a.m. Monday through Friday. Those practices were the worst, man. I, hate, I, I don't even know how I finished the year because getting up at 5.30 every day to practice basketball was terrible. And then on top of it, every practice started the same mind-numbing way. For 20 minutes, we would just drill on fundamentals. So you're just standing there doing chest passes and bounce passes and figure eights and around the world. And you're just like, what are we doing? And so finally one day I was like, coach, it's hard enough to get in here at 6 a.m. Why do we start the practice the same way every day? And he said, because if we don't, you guys will slip on these. If we don't drill these fundamentals into you and remind them of you every day, you'll, you'll slip on them. Now, I was thinking about that this week as I thought about this, one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther, who tells followers of Jesus. He says this, preach the gospel to yourself every single day and twice if necessary. Now, why does Luther say that? Because we're capable of slipping. Right? We're capable of forgetting. Not the story mainly, but maybe the cost. We're capable of forgetting what all God has done for us. We're capable of forgetting how undeserving we are. We're capable of forgetting just how much he loves us and is for us. And so what does he do? He invites us to a meal. A meal where we can dine with him and commune with him and relate with him. A meal where we can be reminded of his love and his cost. A meal where we can be reminded of what he thinks you're worth. And if you don't think you need that, then you don't know you. So just like in baptism, communion is not a means of salvation. It's a commanded act of worship that's meant for the enrichment of those who have already believed in Jesus. And so here's how we practice it here. We practice what is known as open communion. It means that anybody, right, anybody who is a follower of Christ is welcome to take communion with us. It doesn't matter to us what your church home is. It doesn't matter to us what your Christian background is. It doesn't matter to us if you agree on anything I've said up to this point or not. Right? And here's why. The point of communion is the unity of Christ's body. So if you're in 1 Corinthians 11, look back one chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to read this out of verse 16. Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. The idea is that the communion table is where all who have called on Christ can lay aside their differences and dine with our Savior. Because at the table, we're just like we were at the cross. We're all sinners in need of saving, and it's our Jesus who saved us. Now, there are churches who practice, who practice what is called as closed communion, which means if, you don't, if you're not a member there, you, you cannot take part. And, and this is just me. I'm going to step away from the Bible a little bit just so you know this is my opinion. I just don't get that. I just, I've, tried to, I've tried to think about why and I don't get it. Because to me it's completely missing the point. All followers of Jesus are welcome to join us at the table here. And that said, not all of you should take it. And we're going to break that down for you. Some of this is going to be between you and God. And first, the first point we need to point out is this. Communion is an act commanded of believers in Christ. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus this morning, when we take communion this morning, it's, that's not for you. And, and please hear me. I, I don't say that to be exclusive. I don't say that with an air of superiority. I don't, I don't say that like a you can't do it, ha ha. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't know why you would. Because okay, look again at verse 16 I just read in chapter 10. 
It says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? See, a large point of communion is to commune with Jesus. And those verses tell us that when doing so, we participate in his blood. We participate in his body. Why would you intertwine yourself and connect yourself and identify yourself so deeply with one in whom you have not believed? And again, this, this, this is me. Okay? I think, my opinion, is that communion is the perfect place to give your life to Jesus for the first time. So if you're here and you've, you've never given your life to Jesus, you're like, man, today is my day of salvation. I want to trust in him. Then please, take communion today. And when you take the bread and the cup that showcases what Jesus did for you, just, just trust in his body that was broken. Trust in his blood that was given to you. And, and the neat part for you is that every time you take it after you, you'll be reminded of your moment in which you first trusted Jesus. But if you come to our services and we serve communion like we're getting ready to in a few minutes and you have not yet believed in Jesus, feel free to just take a pass. And here's what I promise you. There's going to be no judgment on you. There's, gonna be, there's no one on the side like taking tally like they took it and they didn't, right? We don't have that, right? Because no one's going to be looking at you because here's why. We've all been where you are. None of us came out of the womb as fully devoted followers of Jesus. We've all been there. And when you're ready, when you experience how awesome Jesus can be, you'll join us. There's not going to be anybody looking at you, wondering what you're doing, focused on you, talking about you. And if they are, their pastor will fight them for you, okay? You don't have to worry about it. Second is this. Followers of Jesus should examine themselves before taking communion. Look back at chapter 11 in verse 27. We read these verses. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep doesn't mean they're taking that, it means they're dead. Okay? Verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Those verses are scary, aren't they? But here's the thing. They're so scary, they lead to overreactions. And I don't want us as a church to overreact. I don't want us to underreact. I want us to properly react. And so you need to understand the context of 1 Corinthians 11. The context is that Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. And I want you to know what the church of Corinth was doing. When they took communion, they, they served communion as a full meal, something we probably call a potluck or fellowship today. And what was happening when they would come together for this meal that they were declaring as communion is that the rich were stuffing their faces in front of the poor and not sharing anything with it. Others would rush to eat all the food they could before anyone else got there. There was a third group, you'll love this, who was just getting hammered drunk in what was supposed to be a worship service, what was supposed to be communion. So yeah, it's not much wonder why God had really strong reactions against that. I don't think that's what's happening in this room. If it is, I need to know about it, right? But I don't think that's what's happening. That said, we should follow Paul's advice to examine ourselves. Because there's two reasons that should cause us hesitation from taking part in communion. The first reason is this. If there is treasured, loved, unrepentant sin in your life, if there's something in your life that you know the Bible says is wrong, you know it's wrong, but you don't care. 
And you just keep on doing it. You're not going to repent of it. You're not going to change it. Man, at that point, you know what that's called? That's called trampling on grace. And that's a good way to drink the cup in an unworthy manner. If that's you, I would advise you to get that right before the Lord before you ever partake in communion. The second way is this. If you're harboring resentment or bitterness towards another, especially a brother or sister in Christ. Remember, the design of communion is worship and unity. And none of us should commemorate Jesus forgiving us while holding forgiveness from another. That doesn't make any sense. And so if either of those are present in your life, the the, the strong encouragement, the loving encouragement to you is to repent and get right with God and the other person before you take communion. Now what I don't want is for us as a church to be afraid of communion. Because sometimes that's what people, they read these verses and they just kind of stop taking, they just get get nervous. Communion is a gracious gift from God meant to encourage our walk with him and glorify Jesus. If only perfect people could take it, no one would. And I want to remind you who was at the table when Jesus instituted it. You know who got the first communion? Jesus gave it to his disciples, 12 guys, 10 of whom were about to desert him, one who was about to deny him, and one who was about to betray him. So what you need to know is none of us have ever earned a right to take part in communion. It's all by grace. It's all God's grace. We should examine ourselves, asking him to reveal sinful things in our lives, repenting of those to him at the table. It's a great place to do that. All right, so we got these two powerful ordinances. We need to wrap it up, right? So what do, what do we do? Like, what's your response? Well, honestly, that depends on where you are. And so first, the first step in this is you must surrender your life to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might think, man, this sermon had nothing to do with me. That's not true at all. Because did you catch the imagery in these things? We're talk, there's, it talks about a body that was broken for you, blood that was shed for you. It talks about dying to self and being buried and being raised to new life in Jesus. Only Jesus Christ can do that for you. <laughs> The church of Jesus commanded to observe baptism and communion for two reasons. Number one, to remind us of how he saved us. And number two, to proclaim that story to others. And so the point of surrendering your life to Jesus is not that you can take part in new things. The point is eternal life. The point is being saved from your sins. The point is that you need Jesus. The point is that you have no hope outside of him. So give your life to him today if you've not. If you have... Here's what you need to do. Number two, elevate the importance of these in your life. There are only two ordinances that Jesus commanded his church to do, which means there's a level of importance than beyond what I could express today. And so if you've never been baptized, listen to me, be baptized. Follow after Jesus in obedience. Whenever someone is getting baptized around here, we arrange a schedule so that the entire church can be in on it. And there are people who come to the first service who can't be bothered to stay and watch the baptism. And there are people who come to the second service who can't be bothered to come 10 minutes early. That needs to stop. Whenever someone is baptized around here, move around whatever you have to be here. Because as a church, we will and we must gather together and celebrate when someone follows Jesus in obedience to baptism. It's a big deal. Communion, other than a rare change, we, we observe communion on the first Sunday of every month. You can book it, okay? And my advice is this, give that Sunday protection. I'm, I'm to this level, when you plan vacations, when you're going to be out of town, plan around it. You might think I'm nuts, but listen, there are only two ordinances that are commanded by Jesus. Baptism you only get to do once, so communion is the only thing you get to do the rest of your days. It's incredibly important to the life of a believer. 
We've got to elevate the importance of these things. And as we elevate them, we must give them the respect they do. Don't ever mindlessly take communion, please. Don't get baptized because your friend did or your grandma wanted to, wanted you to. Thoughtless worship is not worship. Understand what the purposes of these gifts are and give yourself fully to them. Know what baptism proclaims and then decide to do it. Take communion slowly. Examine yourself. This stuff matters to God. It needs to matter to us. And then lastly, always remember why. Always remember why we do these. See, communion and baptism are no different than any other act of worship. The goal is to exalt Jesus. The goal is to proclaim his story and to lead others to him. And so we celebrate what owns our hearts. We obey whatever it is that we love. And at this church, right, our aim is that Jesus would own our hearts and be the objects of our love. And that's, that is what happens when the church gets this right. Jesus is glorified and baptisms are celebrated and communions become intimate time with him. And he gets more and more of our hearts. And our steps of obedience in these areas make it easier to obey in other areas. And every time, church, every time we proclaim the death of Jesus, every time we proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, every time we proclaim the change that he's made in our lives, every time we proclaim his saving grace, it always leads to more and more people trusting in him. Every time you obey, this is why obedience matters. Every time you obey Jesus with all your heart, others are pointed to and led to him. So church, we will worship. We will worship with obedience. We will worship by singing.